Morning, New Hope. Glad that you're here. If you're new, welcome. Glad that you've chosen to be with us this morning. If you're uh, joining us online virtually through the broadcast, really glad that you're part of this. Uh, two things before we jump into the text we're going to look at this morning, and they're detail items related to you. If you're looking for a way to serve here at the church, this would be really helpful. As you can obviously tell, the church is growing, and if you're parking over at the bowling alley, thank you. That's a huge help. It gives more spaces in the parking area for us. But one way that we could really use your help is in the technical area as camera operators for the broadcast for the live stream. Uh, you may not be aware of it, but there's around 700 to 900 households every week that stream in and do virtual church with us. And we could really use individuals who would volunteer to serve on the cameras. It's not hard to do. You could going to be in the service anyway, so you could sit behind a camera and operate. And we would love for you to sign up for that. My son Derek, who leads tech ministry, is back there, and he would be happy to talk with you about what that would look like for you to serve in that way. So consider that. As long as you're considering helping with missions and helping with the camera operations, one more thing to ask you to consider. We have a fund here called the Compassionate Care Fund, and you may have seen on the giving envelopes a little designated area. There's specifically the general fund and the building fund, and this Compassionate Care Fund is used to help us help individuals who may have a financial shortfall over a period of a month or two months or three months. Perhaps they can't pay their power bills or can't buy diapers or can't put food in the refrigerator. Compassionate care is used for that reason. So I would really encourage you to consider that in your giving as you're getting ready to figure out how to participate here at New Hope. Now, having said all that, I want to transition with you over to the book of Exodus. Yesterday, I was asked by somebody if we're going to be in the E2E study about five years, to which I said yes. And I, I would say this for this reason. Um, I want you to understand how we're going about what we're doing. And if it takes five years or 60 years, it really doesn't matter. It's all God's word. So we really need to understand God's word well. But here's the goal. We knew that when we took on the book of Genesis, we had to really lay a good foundation. So it took us a while, it took over a year to go through the book of Genesis. You're gonna find the book of Exodus moving at a faster pace. When we get to Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, much, much quicker. And by the time we get to the major prophets and the minor prophets, we'll be doing more of an overview so that we can get to the New Testament. Ultimately, we want to land in the book of Revelation. So that's the goal that we're moving towards. And just so you understand the chronology of it, we're just going to keep marching our way through. We may not be able to hit every one of the 66 books. But we're going to do our best to give you a broad, comprehensive overview of the scope of Scripture so that we understand God's Word as best as possible. That way, He can use us most effectively in this culture that we live in. Having said all of that, I would love to pray with you before we step into this study. Would you join me? Father, I thank you for the purpose that we're here, and it's obviously to glorify you, but it's also to be strengthened and to be encouraged and to connect. I thank you for what you're doing among us, and it's evident that your spirit is at work here. We would ask that you would give us more of that, and we would along the way, Father, ask that you would increase our patience and increase our understanding of who you are and increase our heart of love for other people. I pray, Father, that all of that would come out of what we're about to look at this morning and that you would amplify the book of Exodus for us so we can see you and understand who we are to you. We pray for this in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, amen. Jesus gives us a remarkable insight into the character and the nature of God in the book of John. God the Son is speaking about God the Father. In John chapter 5, some individuals are challenging Jesus on a decision that he made. He's entered into a conversation with a man who's laying by a pool. We might think of it as a swimming pool. For them, it was a soaking pool, and it's near an area called Bethesda. So it's called the Pool of Bethesda. And Jesus engages in conversation with this individual who's been ill for 38 years, laying as someone who's disabled and can't move himself. So Jesus has a conversation with him. Let me open this up for you, and you'll see it on John 5, verse 2. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which in he is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. A man was there, in verse 5, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. So he's been disabled most of his life. Jesus engages him in conversation and says to him, do you want to get well? 
Well, obviously, if you're disabled and you're laying by the pool of water, you would love to get healed, but Jesus wanted to hear Him articulate exactly what He wanted. Where the story goes is Jesus did heal him. The man picks up his pallet or his mat and walks away, and obviously people are shocked. And then this happens, verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. And we would want to be healing people on Sunday, right? Or Saturday. Can't have that. So verse 17, but He answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him because He was not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. He's called them out and said what He did to them because they didn't understand how God was working. God's working around them and they can't see it, which is a common human problem. God is at work in ways they don't understand. And if you step back 2,000 years from when Jesus walked the planet, you find this exact same principle playing out in the book of Exodus in the lives of the ancients. What we've seen so far in the life of Joseph is that he was destined to go to Egypt. It was completely God's plan, and he became the instrument by which God was going to rescue. So because of a promise that God made, they had to be in Egypt because God had told Abraham that Abraham's offspring was going to relocate, and the relocation would result in them becoming slaves, and that he would deliver them eventually. Go with me on the screen and look at this. This is God speaking to Abraham in Genesis 15. And God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Now God doesn't fill in the blanks. He just says to Abram, here's the big picture. This is what's going to happen. You don't get all the details. You just need to understand this is where things are headed. What we're reminded of when we see things like this and link it together with Exodus chapter 1 is that when promises are from God, and I want you to say amen if you agree with this, when promises are from God, they will be fulfilled. He always is true to His Word. He has a 100% track record. Now it's really important to notice, Abraham is not told that the land that is not theirs is Egypt. So he can't tell Isaac, and Isaac can't tell Jacob, and Jacob can't tell his sons. They don't know that where they're going is actually the place where they're going to end up being enslaved. Neither is it mentioned that the future exodus that's going to take place will be some kind of an escape, and a very quick escape. Jacob is only 15 years old when Grandpa Abraham dies, but Abraham has had enough time to pass on what he knows about God. And Abraham has passed on to Isaac what he knows. Isaac has passed it on to Jacob. Jacob has passed it on to Joseph and his other sons. And generation after generation, you find this legacy of God's faithfulness in doing what He said He would do. Now, what we find when we come into this E2E study, stepping into the book of Exodus, it indicates that the author of this book actually is very, very conscious that he's contributing to an ongoing sequence of events in the activities of God. We understand the author of the book of Exodus to be Moses, and this is how he writes, verse 1. Now, and your translation might say, and, now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The author, Moses, is showing some linkage. I'll come back to that in just a moment. It's kind of technical, but I want you to see it. But as you're reading it, you might be saying, where's Joseph? How come he's not in that list? Well, go to verse 5. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Uh, Here's the technical component of this. In the Hebrew language, the word that you have in your Bible is and, or, or the word now. And is actually linking the generations that are listed here. What you find, this this is the very first example of a practice that appears in all the historical books of the Old Testament. 
It uses the word and in Hebrew to actually begin the history. So Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, they all begin with the exact same word, the word and. So there's this linkage going on. And the linkage is showing who the mother is, and then it lists in order of seniority, Rubian, Simeon, and all the sons of Leah. And then it lists the sons of Rachel. And then it lists the sons of the handmaids. A very deliberate action here that I'll come back to in just a little bit. It's really significant to the story. So let's jump into the story. Verse 6, Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation... But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Moses is reiterating some God language here, something that God had promised earlier to Adam all the way back in the earliest part of Genesis. God had said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply. And then he repeated his promise to Noah. And he repeated it to Abraham, and he repeated it to Isaac, and he repeated it to Jacob, that they would be a fruitful people. Here's the very specific promise that God made from Genesis 15, that their seed would be as numerous as the stars of the heavens and the sands of the sea. So we find right away in the very first seven verses of the book of Exodus, it's reminding us of something. All that's taking place here is directly related to that which has gone before. That's why Moses begins with, and, as though there's this seamless flow right from Genesis into the book of Exodus. So broad overview. The sons of Israel, they arrive in Egypt, and they're the inhabitants of the land. They come as a group of relatives, but you and I are very quickly reminded that God is very faithful to His Word, and the sons of Israel, the man, become Israel, the nation, and very, before very long, they're numbering in the millions, and that's why verse 7 says, they multiplied and became exceedingly mighty. The word there is actually numerous. They became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. So the first seven verses fill in a gap a gap of 400 years, from the time of the death of Joseph all the way to the time of the Exodus. And during those 400 years, they're not hearing anything from God. God is there. He's active, but He's silent. He's not revealing what He's doing in the background. He's not necessarily displaying His purposes publicly. But he's there working all the time. It's as though he's silently moving the pieces on the chessboard in order to put everything in place. This is a match for what we understand that Jesus said. Jesus said in John chapter 5, my father is always working. I too am always working. I want you to consider this. A 400-year period of time they haven't heard anything longer than the United States of America has been in existence. These people have gone into slavery, and they're not hearing anything from God about the conditions that they're in. But God is at work in this moment, just like He's at work right now in your life. You may not see it. You may not be aware of it, but God is at work right now. And Jesus says if we have eyes to see, if we'd only have ears to hear, we'd be dialed into what God is doing. He may not be revealing it in a broad display of what he's doing or publicly displaying his purposes. And more so, just like then, just like now, it's as though he's silently moving all the pieces on the chessboard into place. Uh, As a result of that, in kind of an overview type of way, we find that this book of Exodus actually becomes a door into some really deep theology. And it it enables us to learn from somebody who actually walked with God personally and intimately. And along the way, what we discover is more of God's character and more of God's nature in ways that we would never know otherwise unless Moses wrote it down in the book of Exodus. And along the way, we're reminded of this truth. And the truth is this, God's deliverance, God's intervention in your life, it is always right on time. It's never too early. It's never too late, although it seems like to us it's too late. For the Exodus, the people of Israel, for those individuals, they don't know that God's working around them to deliver them, especially from this oppression, even though He's at work around them, they just can't see it. So verse 8, 
Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. So verse 8 indicates this new king rises up who knew nothing of Joseph. And you might want to ask yourself, how in the world is that possible? How could that happen that Joseph had had such an imprint and did so much for that nation and yet people don't know? Well, the logical answer is time. Enough time goes by and one generation will rip down the statues of a previous generation. You don't think that our generation is the first to do that. These individuals are ignoring completely what was done for them in the past. And so what we also find here is this really links with history. This is very likely the leader of the Hyksos dynasties. And the Hyksos is a unique, remarkable people who are not actually Egyptian at the roots. Now, you probably learned about the Hyksos people when you were in grade school, but just a reminder for you. The, the Hyksos were individuals who deposed the pharaohs. And it happened very swiftly around 1700 BC. And they removed the pharaohs from leading Egypt because they were a strong military presence. They swept in and the people barely had time to even react to what was going on. Let me show you a quote from an Egyptologist that is from Hanover College. He's, he wrote it this way. The Middle Kingdom of Egypt mysteriously ended around the mid-17th century BC and was replaced around 1720 to 1640 BC by a group of people dubbed the Hyksos by Egyptians which means princes of foreign lands. Now, there's an individual whom we learn a lot about ancient history from. His name is Man Manitho, and he was an Egyptian who lived around 300 BC. And he wrote about things that happened during his lifetime and way before him. He gives us insight like historians who lived around the first century give us insight around the time of the church. But Manitho wrote this about the conquest of the Hyksos. By main force, they easily seized it without striking a blow. And he's talking here about the capital city. And having overpowered the rulers of the land, they burned our cities ruthlessly, raised to the ground the temple of gods. Finally, they appointed as king one of their number whose name was Solidus. Uh, I'm not trying to teach you Egyptology. I'm, I'm not that good at it myself, okay? I, I just want you to understand what's going on here. This new minority power has come into existence and they're a military power. And they've swept into Egypt, and yet, even though they're powerful, they're threatened by this vast number of Jews that they oversee. So verse eight and verse nine work together. Verse eight, we're told this new king arises, and it's written in a negative way, and then in verse nine, we're told that that new king, he's afraid. He's got fears that the Hebrew people will overtake his people. Now, let's just be rational. It is not logical to think that the Israelites could overtake the Egyptian population of an entire nation. They haven't had enough time to grow that fast. But it is logical to think that they could be a threat to somebody who's not part of the native population, but this Hyksos people. They could certainly outnumber this ruling party that's in Egypt. Bigger than that, though, let's ask this question. Why does God allow Israel to stay in Egypt during this really turbulent time. In other words, why wait 400 years to bring them out of Egypt? I would ask you to say amen to this one more time if you agree with this statement. First and foremost, your God is a patient God. You and I are all living proof of that. He's patient with you, he's patient with me, he's patient with humanity. And we need to keep that in the very front of our mind. He is patient beyond our understanding. Let me emphasize this for you by showing you a couple scripture verses. You might remember that Moses had not seen God and he said to God after all of the things that he did during the Exodus, could you just let me see you? And God said, no, Moses, you can't because you won't live. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and as I pass by, I'll put my hand over your face. You won't be able to see me, but you'll be able to see my afterburners. Just watch. And as God does that, all Moses could see was a glow, and then he heard the voice of God saying this from Exodus 34, verse 6. Then the Lord, Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious. You might even want to circle that in your Bible church. Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquities, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. 
that's a match for what the New Testament writers understood. Romans chapter 2, Paul emphasized that exact same thing about the character and nature of God. Look with me. Verse 4, do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Or what Peter wrote that he knew about God, 2 Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. God is patient in your life and the life of people that you know for many, many reasons. He's patient for salvation. He's patient for repentance. He's patient for His plans to work out. He's patient for His promises to be fulfilled. It is His nature and His character which plays into this story. By having Jacob and the 12 sons move from Canaan land down to Egypt, God is making absolutely certain that Israel is going to be protected from intermarriage with the Canaanites. And there's a really strong reason for that. The intermingling among the races took place in a really strong way during that period of time, but God said it wasn't a healthy way because of their view of God. I want to expand on that for just a moment. So God gets really specific with Abraham. He says, Abraham, what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep Israel away from the promised land until a very specific moment in time. Watch. Genesis 15, 16, then in the fourth generation they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Let's understand this word iniquity. When you think of perversion, something pops in your mind. When you think of vile, something pops in your mind. The old biblical word iniquity represents this word you see on the screen, it's in your notes this morning. It's talking about pushing the boundaries to the extreme in evil behavior. It's disgusting. Uh, We'll amplify what iniquity is in the weeks ahead of us, but understand this. The people of Canaan are incredibly vile in their behavior, and they currently, in this period of time, occupy the promised land. And God doesn't want the people that He's chosen to represent Him to be intermingling with them so that they would intermarriage, so He has to separate them for a period of time. Let me emphasize it by pointing you to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 18, God's speaking to Moses and the children of Israel, and He says it this way, "'Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled, for the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have brought its punishment upon it, so the land has spewed out its inhabitants." Understand it this way. The people who are currently occupying what will be the promised land are so vile in their behavior, God has to go to the degree to say, that land that they occupy, it's actually going to vomit them out. They're so egregious to me. They have violated every law that I have laid down for them. But then zoom out to this reality. The judgment on the inhabitants of Canaan is delayed. It's delayed, God says, until their sins fill the cup up to the very, very brim, until the iniquity of the Amorites is full. Now, there are times from our perspective when God is not only silent, but He is too patient. Would you agree with that? Okay. You may not even want to agree with that out loud, but I know you think it. I know we all think it. We think, God, what are you doing? Why don't you come? Why don't you deal with this? We have to look at Exodus from this perspective. God is allowing time. Allowing time for what? Well, it's during this 400 years that God is very, very patient and He's waiting to judge them. Even though they already deserve the judgment, He's allowing time. So He puts them on probation for 400 years because your God is also a righteous God and He's not willing for any to perish so that some might come to repentance, that the nation might turn back to God, that He could be waiting that long that perhaps, but He knows there's a point when they've crossed the line and He'll draw the line in the sand and He'll say, okay, it's it. It's complete. They've, they've filled up the cup of iniquity. I've got to deal with this now. But during this time, the situation back in Egypt calls for an extremely delicate balance. 
this new king who has risen up needs to maintain the Israelites in his presence as this really strong economic asset. They're really valuable to the nation of Egypt. But he can't jeopardize Egypt's national security. So how does this Hyksos ruler manage both the politics and the economics of having this growing population of the Israelites inside Egypt? And remember, this guy doesn't know about Joseph, and he doesn't care about Joseph. Verse 10, come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against, and depart, fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. Now, he's not wrong. The Israelites will depart from the land eventually. He's not wrong about that. But this affliction that's taking place at this moment in time, this is what God promised. He promised it to Abraham, and it's beginning to unfold in their lifetime. It is a true tribulation. Last week, we confirmed that God allows those whom He loves to go through really difficult circumstances in order to accomplish His larger purpose. So this tribulation, did you notice this tribulation that's being written about here? It's actually coming from within the walls of government. Now, that's something to step back and ponder for a moment. It has been very astutely observed throughout the history of the world that when there is an oppression of God's people, the oppression always comes throughout history. At any time, it's always originating from within the walls of government. Why is that true? Because your neighbor doesn't have the power to persecute. A neighbor can't throw you in jail. A neighbor can't change the laws of the land. But throughout time, as persecution comes, it comes from within the walls of government. That's where it originates at. But we know that God's people have always flourished during times of affliction and persecution. The church in China today is a prime example of that. The church in China, the true church, is really flourishing even though they're greatly oppressed. That's true throughout history. You go back to the first century. The church was under persecution by Nero and Domitian, and yet it very much flourished in the first century. This principle that you're hearing about in the book of Exodus should be teaching us today in the modern church to be prepared for what might be coming in America. Just a thought to hang on to as we move forward. Now, verse 11, part B says this, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithon and Ramses. Uh, Pithon is actually a dedication to the god. It's the word patam, and it means a city that was built to celebrate their god. And Ramses, we'll get into the details of it later. I'm, I'm not going to break that down right now. It's a great storehouse city. But these things help us date the book of Exodus. They help us to understand the dating and where this lands. But verse 12 is bigger than verse 11. Verse 12 says, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. Now, at this point, there appears to be a change in administration. It appears that the Hyksos ruler is no longer in control, but the Egyptian rulers have moved back in, and, and that matches what archaeologists tell us about history, that the Hyksos were thrown out on their ears and the Pharaoh was restored to the throne. And so we have this change in language in verse 13. The Egyptians compelled, no longer the new king, now it's the Egyptians. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Now, let's just be really honest. For those who are living during this period of time, it has to seem to them as though God has abandoned them. They're going through incredible persecution, and it's coming from within the walls of the government. And they know they've been told they're the chosen people, but they have to be thinking, chosen for what? You ever seen Fiddler on the Roof or gone to the play? There's a great line from Tevya in the midst of the play. He's working in his barn, he's pitching hay, he's trying to feed his animals. And he, he sings a lot in the, in the midst of a musical, if you've never seen it, but Tevya is, is the lead character, and he says in the midst of it while he's throwing some hay, God, I know we're your chosen people, but next time, could you choose somebody else? 
because he understands the affliction that the Jewish people have gone through. There's this silence of heaven. It seems to really, really frustrate, and it almost always seems to come when there's great hostility on earth. So they've got the silence of heaven going on, and they've got the hostility on earth, which seems to be a really common plight for people who belong to God. Now, in our era, we have the advantage of looking back on history. We can look back over time, and we can see in the lives of these ancient people, we understand that God is at work in the background. He's absolutely doing what He said He would do. But what if you didn't have the insights of God's Word? What if you didn't have that to fill in the blanks for you? It'd be all too easy to look on this as oppression without any purpose whatsoever. And that's exactly what you and I go through on this planet when it appears that life is completely out of control if you don't balance it against the Word of God. It's God who has to remind us this is just a light and momentary affliction that you're going through. This planet that you're on, this is just your island home. It's just a temporary place. So along the way, the Bible reminds us there is an eternal purpose in what we're going through. If we actually belong to Him, He works all things together for good. Back into the story, in verse 13, we see that the word Egyptians is used there, which seems to indicate the end of the Hyksos period during this 400 years. But more importantly, whether that's right or not archaeologically, the oppression has begun. And they decided to ramp up the oppression, and it's increased by the Egyptian rulers. So the Egyptian response to the Jews in their country is that they're going to intensify the harassment, and they're going to bring greater cruelty. And so there's two Hebrew words I wanted to focus on with you this morning. It's in your notes. The, the very first word that's used here is the word for bitter that you saw described. They made their lives bitter. They're vexed in their spirit. It's so hard every single day. But the second word that's used here is the word for the rigor that they put them through. And the Hebrew word picture for the parak here that's used is that the Pharaoh had the authority and the ability to break them. The picture that's used is of a stone cracking open. He could crack them in half. What we need to understand from our perspective is this. What the Hyksos rulers did and what the pharaohs did foreshadows what will happen to the Jews down through the ages. The attacks of Satan against God's people is really frequent, and it's a very consistent game plan. There's always this move, counter move going on through Scripture. God makes a move, Satan makes a counter move. God makes a move, Satan makes a counter move. Now, on top of all the torture and all the rigorous treatment, Pharaoh decides he's going to begin an extermination process, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whose name was Shifra, and the other whose name was named Pua, and he said, when you are helping the Hebrew woman to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death, but if it is a daughter, and she shall live. Now, Shipra and Pua seem to be managers over the midwives. They have responsibility because there's so many people. They obviously can't be at every single birth, so they're obviously managing lots of individuals. But Pharaoh is really frustrated that his failure of his plan has resulted in not being able to stop the Israelites. Rather, they keep increasing in number, and so he gets really ticked, and his concern seems to turn to panic. Now, it's one thing if your numbers are increasing and you intimidate the Hyksos because they weren't that many people, but it's another thing entirely to threaten the Egyptian population themselves. And so the Pharaoh comes up with a plan. This birth, rate, this, this birth rate must be dramatically changed, and so Pharaoh turns to the midwives, and Moses uses some very deliberate language here that you need to push down on. Look at what he says. If it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Notice he's not just using biological terms here. He's not just saying if they're infant boys or they're infant girls. It's not just a fetus. He's not reducing it to biological data. Moses intentionally uses the term sons and daughters here. Why does he do that? Because he's speaking about relationship. Something very specific happens at birth. 
A child transforms and transitions from the womb, and they're no longer regarded, even in the medical world, as an infant girl or an infant boy, but the parents form an immediate bond with that child, and there's a complex interpersonal relationship that develops, and they're identified as a son or a daughter, and it speaks to the relationship, which is the term Moses uses here, and it really helps us appreciate the anguish that Pharaoh is inflicting on these people. Now, who in their right mind could imagine a genocide of this caliber that is targeted for annihilation at an entire nation? Sound familiar? This is all part of the move, counter move. Ultimately, the affliction that you see unfolding here is a spiritual conflict. Pharaoh, for his part, thinks that he's manipulating political levers to his advantage. In reality, this is about something much, much bigger, a much bigger platform than just the palace of Egypt. What you're reading about here, church, is a cosmic struggle. Satan is constantly working to thwart the God plans of God, and he's moving behind the scenes, move, counter move. Ever since God pronounced a redeemer in Genesis chapter 3 and said there will be one who will come one day and will crush the head of the serpent, ever since then, Satan has been carrying out this move, counter move, and so we continually find this theme throughout the Bible. God promised that there would be enmity between Satan and his own, those who belong to him. So hear this, church. The battle between the serpent and the seed is real, and it is not to be taken lightly. Pharaoh thinks this is about his realm. But as these stories unfold, what you're going to find, this is actually not Pharaoh versus Israel. This is Satan versus God. And with each crack of the whip against the back of the Jews, he's attempting to strike a blow against God on behalf of Satan. He doesn't even know it. We gain a spiritual perspective when we go to verse 17. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. Church, this is a really good place to pause and ask this question. Do you feel the weight of those words? Do you fear God? more than man? Or do you fear man more than God? Paul wrote about this very thing, Galatians chapter 1. Look with me on the screen. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I was still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Jesus ramps it up, Matthew chapter 10, and he said it this way. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now check what you're reading there against the context of what's happening in the lives of these midwives. In the midst of this huge affliction and this tribulation, when people around them in their own culture are living in fear of this Pharaoh who can bring death to them, parak. Can, can literally break them, crack them in half like a stone. We're told that these midwives fear God more than they fear the Pharaoh of Egypt. And the reverence that they show for God is reflected in how they treat the lives of these infants. These two women allow their spiritual worldview to shape their daily decisions every day as they're living out their life, which infuriates Pharaoh. So he calls them in to account, and he wants to make sure, why are you doing this? And he demands an explanation. So we find this in verse 18. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous. I love that. <laughs> They're not a bunch of wimps like your ladies are. <laughs> they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. Are they lying to him? They're definitely attempting to try and avoid answering the question directly, so they do something really intelligent. They comment on what they know to be true without giving any ancillary details. But an action like this could easily cost them their lives. They're standing before the Pharaoh of Egypt. Are the women lying to Pharaoh? 
Well, we don't know. We don't know clearly what's going on there, but here's what we do know. They're clearly not following His directive to kill the babies. Perhaps it would be better to ask this question, what does God think of their answer? Because they fear God, verse 20, so God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very mighty, verse 21, because the midwives feared God, He established households for them. So God gave them bayith, families. Midwives were many times selected from the population of women who could not have children, they were barren. But in this case, these individuals have been blessed by God and they've been given families. You notice here, the very thing that they deemed too important to destroy is the same thing that God rewards them with as if to say, you're absolutely right, Shepra and Pua. You're absolutely right for protecting these babies. And God goes one step further that maybe you haven't considered before. God allows their names to be written in Scripture for all eternity. How cool would it be if you could look in the Bible and read your name there? Would you love that? They can look at their name written down in Scripture. And now it gets really nasty. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile and every daughter you are to keep alive. See, Pharaoh's conclusion is if we can't get the midwives to kill the babies, we're going to unleash hell upon these people. And there's a principle that's common in this era and it's common today. You violate God's standards in one area and it leads to greater levels of violence. It never improves. It always degrades. Now, Pharaoh puts the responsibility for killing the infants on someone else. But he's openly commanded, notice this, it's a government decree. The government has made a decision. What had been done in secret previously when he negotiated with the midwives, he's now making public and he's saying, all the people can now participate in this. It's no longer a secret. All the people are included in this crime. And his plan is very simple. The daughters are to become slave wives and they will be absorbed into the Egyptian culture in just one generation and the sons will be exterminated. And as horrific and violent as this new decree is, Pharaoh fails to discern that he is simply a pawn of Satan. This is a strategy on a cosmic scale. For this reason, I say that. With the complete extermination of the Jewish people, you cannot have a Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Wipe out the Jews, you wipe out the one who will crush the head of the serpent. This is all part of the strategy of Satan, trying to take out Jesus. It would be impossible if it weren't that God would protect these people. So overriding Pharaoh is a God who is very faithful to his promise, and he raises up two women as leaders, Shipra and Pua. And they fear God more than they fear man. And they apply that practical reverence to the living out of their life day to day. In other words, church, they're living out what they believe right where God has put them. Are they still slaves? Yes. Are they still oppressed? Absolutely yes. But they're making God decisions in the midst of the oppression. And if someone asked you if you could name the names of the midwives from Exodus chapter 1, you could say, yeah, absolutely, it's written right there. Notice what's not written there, church, the name of Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the land, not even mentioned, just his title, but these two faithful ladies mentioned right here. Now, from a human perspective, things in Egypt have gone in a terrible direction for the people of God. Previously, the sons of Jacob, they had prestige they had position in the palace of Pharaoh. And what we found was when it transitions from Genesis into the very first chapter of Exodus, we find the conditions steadily deteriorate and we're only one chapter into Exodus and already these people have been put into slavery. And that's not enough. Now they intend to exterminate all of them, all the Hebrew sons, and enslave the daughters in order to bring a holocaust upon the people of God. And it seems as though things could hardly get worse. And for a person who casually reads the Bible and doesn't pay attention to the details, they could look at this and say, your God doesn't care. 
He doesn't give a rip about these people. He's silent for 400 years. They're in slavery, and he's not rescuing them? What kind of a God is that? Let's go out 30,000 feet and ask a big question. Why does God allow Israel to go through what they're going through? And we've already answered it on the earthly level. The, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. They're not as vile as they're going to be. But there's a bigger picture. From a 30,000-foot view, we're told from Psalms 106, verse 8, this reality. He saved them for the sake of His name, that He might make His power known. That's referring to the people of Israel. See, it's all about God's glory, church. For someone who's new to church, they may look at that and recoil and say, what, is he like on a major ego trip? This is not an ego trip. We vastly misunderstand the glory of God. Everything Scripture says is done to the glory of God. Do you know that if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, if you're saved, you're saved for the glory of God. Jesus amplified that over and over and over again. It's all about God's glory. We were saved for His good pleasure. Now, as you go out to the door this morning, I want you to take a couple principles with you that you're seeing from this passage. Not quite done, but almost. First, remember this. God's purposes are sure, even when you can't see Him working in your life. God's purposes are sure. We can see God providentially working in the book of Exodus for the ultimate benefit of His people and for His bigger purposes eternally. So let's pull out a couple principles from what we're looking at here. There's a couple principles to help us remember when we're going through really hard times or we can't actually see God being evident in our era. I want to remind you, first of all, that there are many similarities between what you're seeing in the book of Exodus and the conditions in the last days of this planet before the return of Jesus. Here's the first thing. God's purposes are being fulfilled even if we are not actively involved in bringing them to pass. In other words, God's going to do what God's going to do, and He's always going to bring about His purposes whether or not you and I choose to participate in His kingdom work. Now, here's the second one. God's purposes are being fulfilled even if we're not aware of it. He is always working behind the scenes, even when every appearance points to the contrary. And you may look at culture and say, what in the world? How could God be involved in what's going on? Know this. The promises of God will be fulfilled exactly as He said. Both the hard ones and the good ones. In that same way, He promised to return one day, New Hope. He promised that He would come back again. That will also be fulfilled. Jesus said, my Father's always working. I, too, am always working. What does that require on your part? It requires patience, and it requires faithfulness, and it requires the same heart of compassionate love that God has for people who are lost. Let's take that mindset into how we're going to wrap up, and I'm going to wrap up in the most unusual way. We need patience while God puts the pieces in place. Let me show you where we're going next week before we get to next week. Exodus chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying, and she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the, ch woman took the child and nursed him. 
The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. But that's for next week. This is intriguing. Some of you want to run right home and pick out Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments or the cartoon version from the 90s called The Prince of Egypt. How does this thing play out? In between now and next week and the weeks ahead, let's do this. Let's keep reminding ourselves of this truth. God's plan to intervene in your life and involve himself in activities in your life is always right on time. He's never too early. He's never too late. And the people of Israel, they don't know that God's got this plan going on in the background, but he's always at work. Jesus said in John 5, my father is working until now, and he never stops working. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would send us out with a desire to increase patience in our life, that we would emulate your nature, that we would be more patient, that we would be more compassionate, and that we would be more loving. Father, I'm I'm very convinced that we can't do this on our own, and so I come to you right now on behalf of your people asking that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would amplify patience in our life that we would be willing to step back and watch and see how you're working and enjoying you in your work. God, I pray for that this week as we represent you to people who are looking for an answer and they're looking desperately and they don't even know they're looking. God, use us. Use us to speak life and love and hope into the people who need it most. Let it begin with us, Father, and let it spread to our social circle. I pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.